Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and I'm the host of New Books and Music, part of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Catherine Preston, author of a magisterial new book from Oxford University Press, Opera for the People, English Language Opera and Women Managers in Late 19th Century America. Today, we might think of opera as elite art music enjoyed only by snobbish classical music fans or perhaps wealthy philanthropists looking to solidify their status in high society. But in this book, Preston demonstrates in painstaking, exquisitely sourced detail that opera was middle-class entertainment in the second half of the 19th century, especially European operas and operettas performed in English translation by itinerant opera companies that traveled throughout the United States, bringing opera to big cities and small towns, wherever there was a railroad station and a theater. And if that's not surprising enough, many of the most important opera companies Preston studies were managed by women. Preston's book provides the first complete overview of the repertoire, companies, performers, and managers that performed English language opera to Americans after the Civil War. Welcome, Dr. Preston. I'm so happy to talk to you today about your new book. Well, thank you for having me, Kristen. I'm really delighted to be here. It's it's a it's an exciting uh, it's an exciting book, and I would like a lot of people to know about it. Well, I think it is an excellent book, and certainly um, quite a magnum opus. It's uh, an incredible research uh, accomplishment as well as writing accomplishment. So how did you decide on the topic for this book? I know you have written before on opera and English translation, but um, why this book right now? Well, it's a bit of a long story. I'll try to condense it. Uh, A number of years ago, many years ago, actually, I wrote a book on itinerant opera companies in the United States in the antebellum period, that is the 1820s to 1860. And when I wrote that book, uh, before I wrote it, um, uh, the, the general knowledge in among Americanist music historians was that opera was not very popular in America during this period. People didn't know about it, and it was certainly something that was for the elite and the aristocrats and wealthy people. Well, in the process of my research, I... I discovered that, in fact, there were lots and lots of opera companies that were itinerant companies. They were touring all over the United States, that is, all over the eastern half of the United States, because the Transcontinental Railroad didn't go through until after the war. Um, And they were part of the mainstream American popular stage. So lots of people, not just wealthy people, lots of people went to these opera productions, and it became an important part of American popular culture. So I stopped at 1860, and then I thought, well, let's do something else. But I kept wondering what happened because I had created this image of of this incredible uh, uh, wealth of of activity in on the operatic stage in America in the 1850s, and then when the when the story gets picked up again by American historians, which is in the 1880s and 90s, opera has become exclusive and not part of the popular theater. And I wanted to know, how do we get, in fact, how do we get from where we were in the 1850s to where we are today, where in, in, in which opera is, in fact, a kind of an aristocratic, elite, expensive um, um, niche market. So I wanted to go, I wanted to figure out how do we get from popular theater to niche market. And so I decided to start looking at just the English language style of opera production, because um, I figured that if, if I'm starting in 1850 and there's huge numbers of companies, when I get to the 1870s, it's going to be impossible to write about. So I decided to to focus on English language opera and started looking. And, and it was amazing what I discovered very quickly, that in fact, English language opera, that is opera performed in English, not necessarily English composers or American composers, but the continental composers, um, 
having their works performed in English for the American stage, they had not disappeared at all. In fact, they were a major part of our our own uh, cultural history. And that's how, I mean, I kind of accidentally got into it, um, but uh, b- but it, 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 it bore a lot of fruit because I've discovered that there were lots of companies. And then coincidentally, I discovered that many of the more successful English language opera companies were managed by their prima donnas, or empresarios who were women, which was extraordinarily um, kind of uh, eye-opening for me because our our image of women in the 19th century is that they're you know they're staying in the home, taking care of the kids, raising kids, and so on and so forth. And this goes this flies against all of our received knowledge about what women were doing in the 19th century. So that was different uh, in the early period. You didn't have as many women managing as you do later on. Is that correct? Yeah, things were different in the uh, late 19th century from the early 19th century. When I when I did the research for the earlier part of the century, um, most of the companies, all of the companies, in fact, well, no, there was one or two exceptions, but most of the companies were run by men, theatrical managers and impresarios, and it was a male-dominated field. There were a handful of women. This changes in the late 19th century, and I think because operatic reception becomes bifurcated by about the 1870s. Um, uh, When you look at what's going on in the 1850s, you have English language opera um, and and there were companies that were performing in English. You also had what were known as Italian companies. Now, the repertory these companies performed was continental. It was French, it was German, but it was sung in Italian. And so the, the, the difference was the Italian companies and the English companies. And the English companies were predominantly popular theater. Increasingly, as the 1850s go on, the Italian language companies become more expensive and more exclusive. Okay. So you're starting to see this beginning of a, of a switch, of a bifurcation in terms of reception. When you get to the post-bellum period, the critics are all saying, oh, English language opera is so passe. It is so old-fashioned. We need to support the Italian language company. And what happens in the 1860s is there are a number of women impresarios or singers who think, hey, this is not true. There's still a market out there for English language opera, and we'll just make our own companies. And so this is the very beginnings of a renaissance of English language opera in the United States in the 18, in the 1860s and then into the 1870s. And so what is happening in the postbellum period is that women who are not... Um, not part of the the Italian language world, or they can't break into it because they're not foreign, decide, forget this, we're not even going to try to butt our heads against this wall, we're going to just go and make our own companies. And so they create this whole other kind of substrata of English language opera performance that becomes extraordinarily popular, but they're doing it kind of outside the mainstream. So just to be clear for our audience, can you talk about um, exactly what the repertoire was? When you say English language opera, um, are you talking about operas originally written in English or are you talking about um, operas written in other languages and in translation? Both. Mostly the latter. Mostly English language operas uh, consist of of compositions that are the standard continental repertory uh, in the in the 1870s and 80s. It's Verdi and uh, it's Aubert and it's um, it's Meyerbeer and um, other really important Gounod. So all of those those major operas that are on the Italian stage in, or in the French stage in France or in Italy um, are being sung in in Italian. Um, by the Italian companies in America and in English by the English companies in America. The English companies also perform the handful of operetta or operas by uh, William Vincent Wallace or or um, um, trying to think of other names of these composers. I'm kind of blanking. Michael Balfe, maybe Michael, Michael Balfe. Michael yeah. Balfe was major major composer. So there were there were some English uh, or British composers who were writing um, uh, opera, and a couple of Irish composers as well who were writing opera in English. And the English language companies in America performed their operas, but they primarily performed the operas that were from the continent. 
So, of course, that brings up the question about why weren't they performing opera by American composers? Why move to translated um, continental pieces or pieces by British and Irish composers? Well, that is actually quite a good question. And it's one that I'm not sure I have the answer to, except that I suspect it's marketing. The, uh, the English language companies knew a good thing when they saw it. They knew that Americans loved opera. They continued to love opera in the 1870s, 80s, and into the 90s. They liked the opera that was, uh, that was continental opera. That was, that was all of the buzz was around these operas that were coming out of, out of, uh, uh, France and Italy. And then a, a bit later out of Germany. Um, and so there was a market for them in English translation. Um, there were actually quite a few American composers who were writing operas. There were something like 25 or so that, that, uh, whose names and whose operas showed up in a list in, in a, in a, in a journal in the United States in around, uh, around 1885. Uh, there was a, a there was a, a kind of a, a, a controversy about one particular opera company and, uh, American critics were going, why aren't they singing, uh, American composers? And, and the response was, well, there aren't very many American composers and nobody knows their works. Well, this, this editor put together a list of about 25 American American composers who had actually written operas, they were not, they, they just, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it's the same kind of problem that American composers of, of orchestral music faced or chamber music faced in that music, uh, the classical style of music was, people looked to Europe for that rather than to Americans. And American composers had a really, really hard time breaking in and getting their works performed. And it, it's the same, it's the same uh, problem with, uh, on the operatic stage as it was on. In the so, um, is this a large repertoire of operas or are we talking about really just sort of a handful that are performed over and over? Well, it depends on the company, and now we get into a whole a whole other uh, subset of of complications. In that, if you look at what operas were being performed on the American stage in the eighteen seventies, eighties, and into the nineties, you have a continuum of different styles of opera, starting on the the I'll say the high end in quotation marks, um, where companies are called grand opera companies, these are grand English opera companies, and the repertory there was primarily. Um, uh, the standard, the standard um, operatic repertory from the continent, plus a couple of English language operas. Then below that, you have what are known as comic operas, and those companies are are, are performing more of the lighter operas from uh, from the continent and English operas, and they're also uh, in, in, including in their repertories. Uh, operettas, which become extraordinarily popular in the 1860s in this country. And then you below that, you have just operetta companies, companies that are performing Gilbert and Sullivan and uh, Franz Bonsoupé and and uh, all, all sorts of other uh, uh, operettas that are either written in English, like the, the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan ones, or written in German or French, um, and then translated into English. And then below that, on the very bottom of this continuum, you have opera companies that are performing uh, uh, burlesques of operas. And that gets into the whole variety stage, which I don't get into, but that's kind of a, that's an area where there's a lot of overlap between variety and these these burlesque opera companies. So to your question, Kristen, um, when you're looking at the, uh, the top two tiers, the comic opera companies and the grand opera companies, these are all in English, they were singing primarily translations of European works. And, the, and, and some of the companies are small and they have maybe oh, eight or 10 operas in the repertory. Other companies were large and, and they had upwards of 30 or 40. Now, having an opera in a repertory and performing it regularly are two different things. But I think it's important to point out that even this late in the 80s uh, and into the early 90s, opera companies in America were performing different operas every night. Um, rather than what we have today, which is, you know, an opera season that has five operas in it, perhaps, and is per, and the, the operas are performed for a stretch of a couple of weeks or something, um, and before you go on to a new production. In 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 the nineteenth century, the the demands on the, the the singers was pretty extraordinary, and they performed lots and lots of operas over and over again. Um, so. 
You've got, uh, you've sort of painted a picture of a lot of companies performing um, a particular repertoire of mostly European works. Who are they performing for? Who's the audience? Let me take as an example two um, two companies that were fairly long lived. Um, the first is Caroline Richings' company. She was she was a British born but American raised singer, raised on the on the stage, um, and she she was kind of the um, the architect of the Renaissance of English language opera in America. She went against the critics and said, "No, no, no, there is an audience for this uh, for this repertory," and she started to to uh, sing um, uh, operas and produce operas in the 1860s during the war and then and then after the war and she was her heyday was in the late 60s that company um, is kind of juxtaposed with with uh, with Emma Abbott's company this is a company that got started in 1879 and went through until 1891 when Abbott died very suddenly um, both of those companies were were geared toward an audience comprised of middle-class Americans with some upper-class and wealthy Americans thrown in. But both Richings, who was actually, as I I said, was raised on the stage. Her father, her adopted father in America was Peter Richings, who was a theater manager and an actor. Um, She grew up on the stage. And so her world as an opera singer was within the context of the American theatrical world, okay? And that audience was not as bifurcated or or, or niched uh, as it becomes in the 1890s. So in the 1860s and 70s, it's still a fairly homogeneous audience, probably ranging from maybe some working class people, probably not so many, but mostly professional people um, and going up from there. So so what, what what we would think of today as the middle class, which of course is a kind of an uh, uh, very difficult term to define. Okay, so so Richings is is in the 1860s and early 1870s. Her audience is primarily a theatrical audience. When you get about a decade later with Emma Abbott, she's really she's trained in Italy um, and in France. Um, she is an American. She was born in in Peoria, Illinois, um, and her audience is overtly middle class. She and her husband, who was her theatrical manager, um, were actually, um, they were, they were brilliant at marketing their opera and they deliberately marketed it toward uh, middle-class people who wanted entertainment. They weren't interested in edification or uplift or anything like that. We tend to associate opera with today. They were interested in education, in entertainment and spectacle and beautiful singing. And both uh, Emma Abbott and her husband, Eugene Wetherill were very much attuned to that, and they sold their opera to the middle class. This does not mean that that upper class people did not, did not go to these performances, but in fact, I think they did. Um, it's just that the, the, the primary audience was middle class Americans like like us, people who would go to musical theater today or to movies even. Um, the, it, it wasn't the upper classes that they were aimed at. Now, when you get into the 1880s, you have a whole different company, which is the American Opera Company, uh, 1885, 86, 87. And that was well-funded and it was supposed to be aimed at the middle or at the upper classes. And that one didn't work, but that's kind of a different story from, from what, what, what your question was about. Actually, now that you bring up the American Opera Company, maybe this would be a good time to uh, switch and talk a little bit about particular companies. Um, and you also brought up Emma Abbott, who, of course, is a very important figure, both in your book and, of course, historically. Um, so maybe uh, uh, talk. Uh, I'd love you to talk a little bit about the American Opera Company. It did fail very quickly, and its failure had such a long-lasting impact on opera in America. Um, I'd love for you to, to, to let our listeners know a little bit about that company and, and why it was particularly such an important moment in American operatic history. Well, that's a big question, Kristen. Um, let's see, where do I start? The American Opera Company looms large in our um, historiographic understanding of English language opera in America because it is the only opera company that performed in English 
that before my book was known to American scholars. There were a couple of articles, three articles actually written by a scholar a number of years ago about the American Opera Company. It had some pretty major players involved. And um, in fact, I'll tell you the major players, Jeanette Thurber, who was the woman who eventually created a conservatory in New York, and she brought over Antonin Dvorak to this country in the 1890s. So she's very well known for that. And the other person involved was Theodore Thomas, who was a major American orchestral conductor, who is, uh, his, his nickname is America's Conductor. He was uh, a proselytizer and educator and very much wanted, um, wanted American, to teach America about good music. I put good music in quotation marks. By good music, he meant German music, German symphonic music. Um, so those two people are were, were involved in the creation of the, in fact, they were very much involved in the creation of the American Opera Company, and they are very well known to scholars for other reasons. So, so there, there has been some focus on the American Opera Company in, in um, American music history textbooks because um, because these people were involved and what has what has happened is that they the company failed absolutely dramatically um, they 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 ran through millions of dollars of money and they just utterly failed um, for a variety of reasons I won't go into all the reasons but the upshot of that is that. Um, the scholars who have done work on the American Opera Company have concluded years ago that they failed because Americans didn't want Italian or English language opera. They were we Americans were not interested in English language opera, and so that failure and that, as far as I'm concerned, misinterpretation of the reasons for its failure have dramatically colored American historians, music historians' reception of or interest in. English language opera because the answer was there. Americans were not interested in English language opera. So I'm working on this particular book and uh, I keep running up against the American Opera Company and I'm thinking, well, I really don't want to write a chapter on the American Opera Company because it's been done. But the conclusions I finally decided were all wrong because I was finding... For example, the Emma Abbott Opera Company and the Boston Ideal Opera Company, who were operative right around the same time as the American Opera Company, and they were making money hand over fist. So I thought, all right, I need to dig into what was going on with the American Opera Company and find out what went wrong. In a nutshell, what went wrong is a a misunderstanding of the nature of the American opera for English language. uh, uh, I'm sorry. A misunderstanding of the of the, uh, the the makeup, the nature of the American audience for English language opera. It the audience was middle class. It was interested in entertainment. It was not interested in you know elitism or edification or education. They wanted to go to the theater, the same way we want to go to the theater to see spectacular stuff beautiful scenery, like, like we see special effects in, on, in the cinema, beautiful singing. Um, they, they, they were interested in entertainment. And when, when a Jeanette Thurber hired Theodore Thomas to be the artistic director and the conductor of her uh, opera company, she raised all the money. She was a philanthropist and she had, she had connections in the, um, among the, the the wealthy people in New York, that was her that was her crowd. Um, she raised money from those people, and then she hired Theodore Thomas. And Theodore Thomas, who was really at 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 heart a Germanophile, um, who wanted to uh, t- to teach Americans about good opera, in which case we're talking Wagner, um, basically changed the, the 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 kind of the orientation of the company to something like what the Italian companies were trying to do and that is um, focus their marketing attempts and their marketing efforts on a particular class of people, people who were wealthy, people who were interested in edification and so on and so forth. And it failed spectacularly. It was, it was, it was just amazing. And I blame Theodore Thomas and I blame uh, Jeanette Thurber. Jeanette Thurber, I think is probably less to blame, although she was pretty profligate with her, with her spending. And they went literally, they went through millions of dollars and the company was bankrupt within 
Oh, within a year, within 18 months, it was, it was, and it was a scandal. And, and, and because it was such a high profile company that had the attention of all the critics and lots and lots of other people, um, uh, it, it kind of poisoned the water for any other subsequent attempt to create a really, really well organized, um, high paid, you know, prima donnas and so forth, a, a, a well-organized company that could present um, English language opera in a way that was similar to what was being presented uh, at the Met. That is the Italian companies or the Italian or German performances at the Met. Um, the, the, the American opera company was, was intended to be kind of a, an English language counterpart to that. And they had the funding and they just completely misunderstood the opera audience. Um, so, so it failed and it, and it had, has had a kind of ripple effect in our, in our understanding of English language opera up, up until the present day. I'm thinking about perhaps we should um, explain a little bit about the bifurcation of the audience that you were alluding to as part of the reason that the American Opera Company failed. So you have the middle class op- uh, audience going to English language opera, but there's also opera being performed in Italian, a little bit of opera being performed in French, opera be- being performed in German. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what audiences, well, let me, let me ask this a different way. Um, they have different audiences, but also why do they have different audiences? Why does the language of performance make a difference? Well, I'm not sure that it is that it is language of performance. Um, boy, Christian, it's such a complicated question because it's such a complicated situation. Um, what we think about today in terms of opera, I mean, let's 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 do it this way. Opera. Um, you know, opera today is, for the most part, considered elite and aristocratic and expensive and so on and so forth. And it, 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 it answers to a niche market, okay? Things are changing with the Met broadcasts and so forth. But in reality, the, the, the sense among most Americans is that opera is a, a very uh, esoteric kind of uh, entertainment. Um, musical theater, on the other hand, is something that people go to. Um, there are kids performing musical theater in high schools, and there's lots of lots of musical theater. I'm talking about American, you know, Rodgers and Hart, and Rodgers and Hammerstein, and uh, Lerner and Lowe, and 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 Cats, and so forth. People know musical theater; they love musical theater. Many, many people do, in any case, and 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 that's in English, and that's a different style. And so those are the two. That's a bifurcation in the 20th century. That started in the 19th century. And, and what I, what I was trying to do in this book is try to tease out this, um, the different strands of this large ball of yarn. And there's all these different colors in it and try to pull them out and try to figure out what happened when and how this all got to where we are today. So, so the English language, uh, companies in the, in the 1880s, and into the 90s are basically the precursors to our musical theater today. The Italian language companies and increasingly the German language companies are the precursors to what we have in terms of, uh, you know, the Met opera companies today. Now, within the um, within the the Italian and German companies, and within that audience that they are going to, there are also subsets, <clears throat> and this is where it kind of gets complicated because. The Italian companies were really pushing um, uh, the idea of of elite and aristocratic and wealthy. In other words, it's the ostentatious display of wealth that is associated with opera in the eighties and into the nineties. Is this making sense? So, so, oh yes, okay. So, if if anybody who's read uh, Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence, um, and we have this this portrayal of these wealthy New Yorkers and the the the, the nouveau riche who are fighting against the old um, cliff dwellers and so forth, that particular book opens with a scene at the Academy of Music, and 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 the performance is of Gounod's Faust in Italian. And what we're focusing on in the book is what's happening in the in the in the galleries, in not in the galleries, but in the boxes, and and how the wealthy are using uh, that performance or going to that performance as a marker of their wealth. Okay, so 
they were interested, as the wealthy people who were going to Italian language companies were, were interested in using opera as a way to separate themselves from the masses who are going to English language opera. But they were interested in entertainment. So they would sometimes go to the English language companies. Okay. Now you get the, the increasing numbers of German language companies and, and the, the, uh, the appearance of Wagnerian music drama. And Wagnerian music drama is the antithesis of Italian language opera or Italian opera for that matter. Italian opera is about drama. It's about melodrama. It's about, you know, human nature and it's about beautiful singing. The, uh, the German opera during this period, especially Wagner's, uh, uh, um, uh, music dramas are about, are about edification and uplift and education and culture and sublimity. And so when you have German language we have by the 1880s we start to have in america these people who are real wagnerians and they want to wrest the operatic stage from people who are interested in entertainment whether they're the wealthy going to the italian companies or the lower class or middle class going to the english language companies they want people to learn to use opera as a way to reach the sublime Okay, so that is a very, very different audience than even the Italian language companies and their aristocratic audiences. So when the when the Metropolitan Opera went from Ger- in Italian language performances to German language performance and, and a German language repertory, many of the people in the uh, in the box holders and at the Met really didn't like it. They didn't want the the German language because they were not interested in uplift and sublimity. They they didn't want culture. They wanted entertainment. Um, so you have you have a, you have a very complicated mixture of different kinds of audiences, different marketing techniques, and different um, uh, different types of repertory. So it hasn't really hasn't to do with the the language so much as the style of opera. There's a very different style uh, between between Wagner's music dramas and the number operas, even of Verdi and and Puccini and and later. Um, but it's mostly um, what the what the function of opera is supposed to be. Is that complicated enough? Well, it is obviously complicated. And I think uh, would surprise people today who sort of see opera as this monolith and it doesn't really matter the style or the language or where it's being performed or anything. It's just this upper class thing and this sort of elite entertainment. And um, it's obviously very different in the time period you're talking about. Um so I'd, I'd like to get back to some to you spoke about uh, Jeanette Thurber and her role as a philanthropist and someone who was sort of dedicated to art music in America, both in the opera company. And then, of course, she founded the, her own um, conservatory and, and brought Dvorak here, and et cetera. But um, I'm wondering about some of the other women in your book um, who are so important, the Emma Abbott and Carolyn Richings and, and others. Um, how could you tell the difference between a woman who was really running her own company and a woman who was just uh, the prima donna for a particular company and got most of the marketing? Um, so there's a lot of marketing energy behind her as a prima donna. Well, um, it's actually pretty easy because if you look at the advertisements, uh, Caroline Richings is identified as the directoress. She made up that word, I think. Um, um, and Emma Abbott was clearly the musical director of her company. Her, hus- her husband, Eugene Wetherill, was the business manager. Um, Cara- uh, Clara Kellogg, someone who you haven't mentioned, was kind of in between both Richings and, and, um, and Abbott in terms of time frame. Uh, uh, Kellogg was very active in the 1870s. And she makes no bones about the fact, and, and she, wrote a, she wrote a memoir, she makes no bones about the fact that she had been singing in an Italian language company and the the manager of the company was actually also the manager of one of the several prima donnas in the in the company, and so he was putting all of his energy into promoting this other prima donna, and so as a result, um, on the nights when that prima donna was singing, the, the houses were full. On the nights the how that the, the Clara Kellogg was singing, the the um, the houses were empty, and so she lost her job at the end of the season. At which point she said. 
um, to hell with you guys. I'm going to make my own opera company. And she made her own uh, uh, Clara Louise Kellogg Grand Opera Company. Um, and she was the manager. She hired she hired. Um, she hired a business manager to, to take care of the contracts and the, you know, the bookings and so forth. But she made all of the decisions. And I can say this about all three of these women. Um, they made all of the decisions as artistic directors. They hired people, fired people. Um, uh, several of them, most of them, I think, made their own adaptations of the Continental Opera, translating them into English. Um, they made decisions about what repertory was being performed. Um, it's pretty clear from the evidence that this was going on. So you look at the you look at the playbills, you look at the advertisements, you look at their if there's any interviews, um, you look at re- memoirs. I mean, as I said, Rich, uh, not not Richings, but uh, Kellogg wrote her own memoirs, um, and and uh, Emma Abbott. Uh, was was as I said, she was a brilliant marketing person. She and her husband both, and and she gave interview after interview after interview in newspapers. Which which some people said, oh well, she's just selling out to the general public. I'm using a 20th century term there, but but she knew that if she if she uh, created an identity for herself as someone who was a girl next door who was, in fact, what she was called was the people's prima donna, um, that would bring people out to her audiences. So, so it's pretty clear from the evidence that you look at that who was, who was in control in terms of the artistic direction of the companies. How did people uh, respond to that? I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning of this interview that it surprised you that um, there were so many lady managers, as you call them in the title of your book, and um, that these women um, clearly were in charge of the artistic direction and sometimes even the business management of their own opera companies. How did uh, people respond to that, whether they're um, their audience or critics? Um, did you did they get a lot of pushback for that? Well, actually, I sort of expected to find pushback, and I look for some. Um, I didn't find it. Um, Caroline Richings, for example, was a favorite. The critics really, really liked her, and they're always they're calling her our, you know, our uh, Caroline Richings. She is this iron woman. She can do anything. She can, she can, uh, she can hire and fire singers. She can get up in front of the orchestra and conduct the, the whole performance if she needs to. And there's perfect, perfectly good, um, uh, anecdotal. Well, I think not anecdotal, but, but, uh, stories were actually doing that. Uh, one time, one of her, her, her conductor, whoever it was, I can't remember at the moment, um, was sick and couldn't, couldn't conduct the, uh, the orchestra and she got up and did it herself. So there was a, there was a, a to my point, Point of view of surprising acceptance of this. Now, I should point out that with Richings in particular, there was um, she was working within the realm of the theater, and um, there is a, a strong tradition in this country and in England as well of theatrical women theatrical managers. Um, most of them tended to be the wives of theatrical managers who died and they took over the contracts, but then subsequently found themselves in this uh, situation and did very well. So, so when, when, with Richings coming out of the, of the, um, of that world where she knew some theatrical managers, her, like I said, her father was a, was a manager um, as well as a, as a performer that it was kind of a, a fairly simple uh, transference for her. Okay. Um, uh, I, I, I didn't, so, so, so the, the critics were, were warm to her and accepted her. The only time I saw pushback was one time she got into a, a, a legal case with a, a singer who had broken a contract and she fell back on the argument that women couldn't sign contracts, which was the, the case. I mean, w- married women in particular during this period uh, were not legally uh, allowed to sign contracts. Their husbands had to sign them for them. And she fell back on that argument and the judge threw the case out. And he said, you know, this is ridiculous. He didn't say this, but he, he was quoted as saying in the, in the newspaper account that, 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 that uh, Ms. Richings has, has for so long uh, acted in a managerial fashion that, that for her to, to make this argument against one of her singers is ridiculous. And he threw the case out. Um, in terms of uh, Emma Abbott, I never saw any pushback. I mean, I saw pushback from other other forces. For example, so many of the American critics in the 1880s were 
born again Wagnerians. They really, really uh, were, were wanted to push the whole Wagnerian um, idea, and and so they they uh, they didn't like what she was doing because what their goal and I'm, I'm generalizing ridiculously here, but their goal was to to follow Wagner's lead and make opera into an into a a sublime edifying, uplifting experience and get it out of the gutters, as they would have put it, that it was just you know, mere entertainment. And here was was Emma Abbott, uh, at the same time they're making this argument in support of the American Opera Company, here was Emma Abbott making money hand over fist by giving to the audiences what they wanted, which was entertainment. Okay, so, so she got a lot of pushback in that way, but I never saw her... Um, uh, being criticized for being a woman manager. In fact, there were some. There's some evidence of of women suffragettes um, or women's rights supporters um, in Chicago. For example, uh, there was a there was a woman who wrote a a, a regular column for women's rights in the. Um, uh, in the Chicago Interocean, a, a pretty major newspaper, and and Abbott was just getting started, and she was coming from New York, and and uh, the this columnist called out to her sisters and said, "You must support this woman because she is a strong woman, and she is bucking the system, and we need to support her." So so Abbott got support from women's rights people, and she actually she 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 create, created part of her image was the idea of. Of of allowing women to um, to raise themselves up by their bootstraps the same way men could do. So so she felt that that uh, I don't think she was I don't think she worked in in the whole area of suffragette in that movement, but she certainly believed that women could uh, stand on their own two feet. Um, so I but I saw I saw no evidence of people saying, well, what the devil is she doing? Um, uh, she's she's uh, she's uh, you know she should be in the home because I guess I guess because she was a, she was an actress or you know she was on the stage and and things were changing. The other one that I think is worth pointing out. Uh, again, no sense of pushback that I've seen is a woman named Effie Ober, who I've not mentioned yet. She was not a performer. She was just a manager. And she got her start as uh, the independent manager owner of a concert management firm in Boston in the early 1870s. She was managing singers. Her whole background is is from the, um, the Lyceum movement. But um, I think she was she was a young woman in the 18, early 1870s. So she saw um, the whole change in what women did in the greater workforce that was caused by the Civil War, right? I mean, it's the same thing that happened in World War II, where women um, got out of the home and went into the factories because the men were all fighting. This was happening in the Civil War as well. At the end of the war, many of the women were happy to go back to being, you know, working on the farm or or or, or, or raising their families if they were middle class women in, in urban areas, while while as the men became the you know the breadwinners and so forth. But many women thought, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to I want to continue being a wage earner and being my own boss. And so, uh, so Effie Ober was one of those women. I think she was very much, uh, had, she was very much influenced by what happened during the war. Furthermore, as someone who was in the Lyceum movement, which is a lecture kind of bureau where you're, you're organizing lectures for people who are coming, going around to various parts of the country and giving lectures. Many of the people in the Lyceum movement were women, um, the suffragettes, women who had worked in the sanitary fair, um, um, uh, movement in the, in, during the civil war. And, and so, so, uh, Effie Ober knew all of these women. And I think as a young woman growing up, she knew these people because she was working with them. She saw what had happened during the civil war and she decided, well, I'll just create my own management firm. And from that came the Boston Ideal Opera Company, which was, which, which she, she created and managed from 18, let's see, 79 to 1885. And then she bowed out and then that company became the Bostonians, which went on until uh, 1904. So it had a long career. So, so there are three different women, um, uh, four I can mention. Uh, I don't, I didn't see any backlash. I was, I was, I looked for it. I could not find it. Well, do you think then that this is just because they were already out in the public sphere and they were um, people just accepted that women on stage were um, sort of a, a different 
category of woman, so to speak. And so it was okay that they were had such a public role? Or do you think what you've really found is evidence that um, women were not as professionally um, uh, stunted as we might assume in the 19th century? I would say both. Um, things were changing in American society. Um, they weren't unilaterally accepted. There's no question of that. I, I mentioned Emma Abbott and her pushback from the, the, the Germanophile critics. She also had pushback from churches um, uh, that that they felt that she was, uh, she and women on the stage, some some churches felt that she and women on the stage were immoral and and they, uh, uh, they they should not be allowed to do this. Um, there was a perfect example of this um, in, in in the case of, of Abbott. She was on tour in Tennessee. Um, I can't remember if it's Nashville or Memphis. Um, and she she actually was a very moral, upright, um, very proud of her monogamous marriage. She went to church every Sunday, wherever she was on tour, that, because performers didn't perform on Sunday. Um, she would walk out of the hotel wherever she was and walk down the street. And the first church she came to, she would go to that service. So she was a very she had a very Catholic kind of inclusive attitude toward organized religion. And she went into a church in in. Um, Memphis, I think, um, and the the sermon that day by a new minister was about the fact that the that the, the city had opened a new theater in the city that, that and and the Emma Abbott Opera Company had been the first performers and. Um, and she, and the, the whole sermon was about the immorality of women on the stage and Abbott astonishingly. Oh, she was sitting in the back and nobody noticed who, where she was. Astonishingly, got up at the at the end of the sermon and said, "There are good ministers and there are bad ministers. There are good people on the stage. There are bad people on the stage." And just created this incredible furor um, uh, in the, all over the whole country. People, they, the, the 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 wire services picked up this story and and about this whole this whole thing. And then they interviewed Abbott, and she said. I, listen, I I can't think of a of a better way to serve God than for a woman to work work and send the money back home to her children. I mean, many of her choristers in in, in her company were were New Yorkers, and they sent their money back to their to their kids in New York. Um, some would probably say they should be staying home, staying w- with the kids, but they, this was how they could make a living. And so, so I, I don't want to I don't want to suggest that there was no pushback. But but the fact I, I I never saw anything about these this these four women front in the press about oh they should they have no right to be on the stage or they have no right to be out in public so things were changing they were changing slowly um, so the so uh, so th- that part of the equation is there but I think they were changing in part because women were out there in the workforce and were doing stuff that we have forgotten about we don't know this so I think it's, I think the answer is both. We've talked a lot about companies um, so far that were mostly active in the 1870s, 1880s. Of course, Emma Abbott could have been active much longer, but she died very suddenly in 1891. Um, But you end your book with one last company or group of companies that actually is run by a man, um, Henry Savage. And I wonder if you could sort of round out the story here and talk a little bit about what were the challenges he faced. He seems to have had um, a slightly different Economy that he was working within than the earlier companies you've talked about, and uh, and he actually ran his company a little bit differently as well. Well, he, he certainly did, and and you, you certainly know about uh, um, uh, the Castle Square Opera Company as well. Um, I think the major difference and the reason we I end with a with uh, uh, Henry Savage. Well, I, I end with him, and I end with the Bostonians as well, um, is because by the 1890s, um, English language opera had become such an important part of American theatrical culture. And Italian and German language companies had shrunk in terms of their outreach, in terms of their audience. It, it was a real, it's a real picture of niche marketing. By the time you get to the 90s, the Italian, the, the foreign language companies were now almost uniformly identified 
I'm getting on thin ice here, um, as as aristocratic elite and so forth, um, either culturally elite or economically elite. And so the market for that style of opera, unlike the market for the same style in the 1850s, had completely shrunk. So it's really a niche market. English language opera in all of its manifestations, ranging from burlesque opera up through grand opera, had become really, really important and really a major part of American popular theater that would then create an audience or had created an audience that would segue into um, American musical theater at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so it's no longer it's no longer marginalized. English language opera has become popular theater and men wanted to get back in on it. So, so what had been a market that was marginalized and that women took advantage of in the 1860s, 70s, 80s had now become popular theater. It was no longer a marginalized market and men wanted back in. Does that make sense? Of course. Okay. Um, all right. So, so Savage is working in um, in a realm that is very different than what uh, than what Emma Abbott was working in, or or Caroline Richings, and so forth. And he actually was a, he was he was pr- he was pretty smart. He, he understood how American tastes were changing, and he threw his lot in not just with English language opera. Which is the same, you know, it's the same kind of repertory, although there's now a newer repertory that is from Europe and is being translated into, into English, but also some of the older repertory. But also, in addition to that, he was interested in, in the, the new emerging musical theater. Uh, he worked with Jerome Kern. Um, he, 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 um, he, he had his fingers in, in multiple pots, including, um, um, working with, uh, with, with early film music. So, so he was, he was brilliant in terms of understanding the market. And, um, and so he's, he's a great transition into the 20th century. Now, I end my story at the beginning of the 20th century was kind of like an epilogue uh, about what's going on, how things had changed. It's, it's up to somebody else. And there are some there are some people now working in this area, including you, um, who are looking at what's happening at the beginning of the 20th century and how we get from there to where we are today or where we were in, say, about the, eight, the 1950s and so forth. So it, it, things are things are dramatically changing. Uh, American audiences now are no are, are very well. They're losing their interest in operetta, uh, even Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, they're they're looking for um, um, they're looking for upbeat music. They're looking for music where you can dance to it. They're looking for slang. They're looking for topical kinds of stories. This is not the operetta mold, nor is it the uh, English language opera mold. So my sense is to a great extent, these opera companies served a major purpose in terms of creating it. Well, they, they, they were, they were major entertainment in America in the 19th century. And then when you get to the 1890s, they become kind of a transition that people are moving away from the, the old Older style of opera that 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 had been so prominent in the seventies and eighties, um, and moving into newer styles of comic opera or or musical comedy or musical theater, and those terms are emerging in the late nineteenth century. I mean, there, there's all sorts of different kinds of terms because, in reality, that period was was a period of incredible flux. Um, Henry Castle. Um, uh, I'm Henry Castle. Henry Savage was he could figure that out. He figured that out, and he 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 survived the change by actually kind of coasting along the top of it and 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 giving uh, the audiences exactly what they wanted in various different venues. Um, in contrast, you didn't bring this up, but I'll but I'll finish out this way. In contrast with the Boston Ideals which are now called the Bostonians, who had become, after Effie Ober left the company, had become the major comic opera company in America. They were they were universally renowned, and they gradually moved in the direction of all operetta. And in fact, they they uh, the company commissioned operettas by Victor Herbert and and um, by Reginald de Coven. These are American composers. Um, they didn't see the change. They were old fashioned. And by the 1890s, well, the late 1890s and the, and the beginning of the, of the century, they were um, they were still interested in operetta and the audience was disappearing. And they basically uh, they ended up their careers in 1904 after 25 years. Um, 
they, they had to, to close down the company because the audiences were gone. Whereas the Castle Square Opera Company was, was, uh, was still going very strong into the 1920s. Am I right? 2030s? How long, did, how long did Savage go? Do you remember? Well, Savage stopped performing opera, like grand opera in English in 1911. But his comp I mean, he was a an active producer on the Broadway stage and then moving those around in tour uh, until his death, which I I was in the 20s sometime. He didn't live as long as some of the uh, those others uh, from that period. But um, uh, he sort of got uh, away from grand opera and into, like you were saying, operetta and then straight musical comedies and then, uh, and then on into film. He sort of did everything. And I think one reason for that, uh, is and I think one reason he was able to see more clearly what was happening in the market is that he wasn't a singer; he was a businessman. Whereas the Boston, the Bostonians being were being run by their own singers, and um, I, I think that they they must have had a very different idea of the market because they were thinking about what could they sing, what could they perform, and and Savage was really putting together. Um, companies that were going to were going to make money for him, no matter whether he was, you know, whether it was an English translation of Parsifal or if it was the Merry Widow in English translation or you know a Kern operetta. So um, he definitely had a really different um, uh, vantage point. I think that really helped him be so much more successful than some of these other singer managers who seem to have him. A more narrow view. Yeah, it's interesting to to think about how he 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 got into the whole business accidentally. I mean, he just kind of fell into it. So so that's that's pretty interesting. And it, it, it turned out to be. I mean, he turned out to be the man for the job. So so um, yeah. Anyway. But I think the next story, the next the next the next part of this saga is to understand what. Uh, you know, I mean, what you're working on right now is is uh, is opera in on the vaudeville stage, right, or in the variety stage? Yes, or, and and in musical comedies. Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. And Absolutely. There are, some other, there are some other people out there working on on opera on the Chautauqua stage and and opera in uh, in other uh, other areas of the country that that are into the 20th century, which is actually quite useful because I stopped at, at basically at 19, 1900, 1904 thereabouts. I mean, the book was a the book was big enough as it was. It didn't need to go into the 20th century. So, well, it's certainly a much needed book. I think there's nothing else out there that has even begun to provide as much information as you have on so many different people, so many different companies, um, and really surveying, like you said, the whole country. It's very difficult to do that. And um, uh, no one had even attempted it before you. And so I think it's going to be a book that's going to, you know, people are going to be using for years to, to understand what was happening um, in American culture in the the second half of the century. Well, thank you. I hope so. It's it's uh, it's a it's a major hole and I've begun to fill it. Um so took a long time, but now it's done. <laughs> well, well that of course brings me perhaps to our my last question which is now that you have finished this enormous project, what are you working on? What can we expect to see from you next? Well, um, I jumped right into a, a new book because I just retired from, from the College of William & Mary, where I've been teaching for almost 30 years. And the new book is a biography of an American composer named George Friedrich Bristow, who most people have never heard of. But it turns out that he was regarded as the most popular, not popular, most important classical musician in America during the 1860s and 1870s. And I say that, I, 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 I say that not because I'm running a biography of him, but because in all of the newspaper research I've done and uh, uh, periodical research I've done, I keep coming across this description of him as our American composer or the most important American composer. Um, off there, there, there are these comments that are just kind of uh, asides. That so, so this is something that we don't know about. Um, uh, I, I don't know what happens to his reputation in the 1870s because I haven't written that chapter yet. Um, but, but he was an, a composer who was. Uh, who, who was completely involved in the musical fabric of New York City. He, he was born there in 1825. He died in 1898. He was a composer, an educator, a 
performer, a conductor. He wrote five symphonies, an opera, a major oratorio. Uh, and we don't have a biography of him, which is amazing. So, so there's, a, there's a biography series called American Composers that the University of Illinois is publishing. And it, they're, they're short biographies. They're, they're like 120, 140 pages, and, which is very different than the 600-page book I just finished. And uh, that's what I'm working on now. And it's actually quite interesting because his music is actually quite good. Well, I am looking forward to being able to interview you when that book comes out. Thank you so much for being with me. All right. Thank you so much, Kristen. 